So we come back to Matthew. Coming back to Matthew, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 26. If you would take your Bibles. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to be reading verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face, with his face to the, uh, to the ground, and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my beef trayer. Last week we looked at a passage in Colossians chapter 1. And, he looked at, and we looked at Emmanuel and what that really means and who we celebrate as a Christmas child. At the beginning of that passage, we were told that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And at the end of that passage, we read that God was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How is, how is he going to do that? Paul said, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The only way. And as we have celebrated the Christmas child, we, we often sing about the three kings. We talked about them and Ben's great tie uh, reminding us of the kings that came to, to glorify that newborn baby. And they brought gifts with them. And we're told that those gifts were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, I wonder if those gifts were not a topic of Mary's thoughts as she pondered all these things in her heart. The gift of gold was a king's gift, and Christ is the king. And I, I think Mary probably understood that. After all, he was to be seated on David's throne. The Old Testament talked about that. Frankincense was a worthy gift of Christ since he was the anointed one. It's, it's, it's an anointing and he deserves our worship. And I think probably Mary understood that because after all, he was a promised Messiah, the anointed one. But myrrh, why myrrh? This was probably the hardest one for her to get her mind wrapped around. See, myrrh was used for preparing bodies for burial. And here, myrrh was a prophetic gift because Jesus would die for the sins of the world. 
Dr. J. Vernon McGee makes this comment about the three gifts. Gold speaks of his birth. He is born a king. Frankincense speaks of the fragrance of his life. And myrrh speaks of his death. A moment ago, we sang the song, Man of Sorrows, What a Name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Philip Bliss, who wrote that song, borrowed the description, Man of Sorrows, from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 3, where it refers to Jesus as a man of sorrows and familiar with pain and one who is despised and held in low esteem. Now, if you were to read the whole of Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah describes the suffering of Jesus in detail. He uses words like despise, rejected, esteemed not, stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, scourged, oppressed, slaughtered, imprisoned, judged, and cut off, referring to his death. In fact, I think if there was any one thing that dominated his entire life on earth, I would say it was suffering. Grief had been his constant companion all through his life. Grief over sin, grief over disease, grief over unbelief, doubt, disobedience, ignorance, rejection. They were all around him all through his life and ministry. And that's why Isaiah described him as a man of sorrows and familiar with pain. It was constant, but there was no sorrow that he had experienced like the sorrow and pain that he felt in that last week on earth. And as we enter into an understanding of the sufferings of Christ, we have to begin in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before Jesus went to the cross, he went to the garden. To get a better understanding of his suffering on the cross, we, have, we need to understand his suffering in the garden. It gives us a much greater insight into how much he loved his Father, how devoted he was to his Father's will, how much he and the Father loved sinners. And we also learn from him how to face the strongest temptation, how we can face our strongest temptations and triumph over it just as he did. Now, we've seen his sorrow before. He wept over the city of Jerusalem, grieving over his own people who had rejected him, knowing the consequences that were going to follow. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. But here, as he faces the cross, we find him at the deepest point of sorrow in his life to this point. As one commentary put it, this is sacred ground. Because the time he had with his father was personal, it was very intimate, it was very private, and it was very deep. The disciples, though nearby, were not there. And we wouldn't know anything about this if it weren't for the fact that the Holy Spirit shared this information, shared these words, this situation that took place with the gospel writers. And I'm so glad he did. Here we find a profound look at the suffering Savior, and therefore a profound look at Jesus' humanity. 
Now, we talk a lot, as we should, about Jesus' deity. But we tend to say far less about his humanity. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we read that for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Being tempted in every way was describing his humanity. His, his temptation, the, the weaknesses that he, he experienced was talking about his humanity. And Jesus began his ministry out in the desert. You'll remember that, uh, being severely tempted, uh, trying to derail Jesus uh, from, the, from the get-go. I believe he was tempted throughout his lifetime, not just there and not just at the end. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him as man suffering the agony of his greatest temptation and yet being triumphant and victorious in his trust in his father he shows us here how to battle satan and trust god at the same time this is an important passage for us to try to get a handle on it because it's it it it, it speaks to us on a daily basis because we do suffer from time to time some more than others We all face grief, we all face pain, we all face sorrow and fear, and and Satan loves to use those things to try to get us down, try to get our eyes off of Jesus, try to destroy our faith, try to destroy our trust in the Lord. So we want to understand as much as we can about the suffering of Christ, but at the same time, to understand the way to victory over over temptation, and that is absolutely vital in our Christian life. Now, the scene is Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a garden on the Mount of Olives. Uh, Gethsemane actually means olive press, uh, which means that, that they had a, some kind of a press, like a wine press, but here's an olive press to make olive oil. And Jesus and his disciples have finished the Last Supper, the Passover, and in verse 30 of the same chapter, it says they sung a hymn in that upper room, um, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And this is then the scene of this great struggle that Jesus had. And when they arrived at this place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, if you remember, on their way to the garden, Jesus stopped partway and told them that this very night you will all fall away from me on account of me. And when Peter refused to believe it, he told Peter specifically, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You would have thought that maybe, just maybe, they would have taken that to heart and perhaps spent the time in the garden praying for strength to stand firm. But you'll remember Peter's response to what Jesus had told him. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. They were so sure of themselves. Again, as we mentioned a while back, they meant well. They had good intentions. They loved their Lord, but they were not capable in their own strength to stand the temptation that they were about to face. It would have been good for them to spend that time in prayer for strength. But you know, we can't be too harsh on them, can we? Because for us, it's easy, it's easy to do the same thing. I've, I've done it myself. We tend to try to stand on our own, to fight in our own strength, try to resist on our own, 
And often we tend to turn to God in prayer as a last resort, when that's the first thing that we ought to be doing. So Jesus says, sit here while I go over there and pray. Then in ver- it says in verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. That, of course, was James and John. And I believe he took them with them for a couple of reasons. One, they, they were the leaders. that They were the ones that he trusted. Um, they were also his most intimate, closest friends. The ones he wanted with him for support and for intercession to pray with him and to encourage him. Now, the first thing that we see here, and I'm going to be looking at four different words as we go through this passage. Um, The first one that sets the stage for everything else is the word sorrow. Sorrow, as he walks further into the garden. And he takes these three men deeper into the garden in verse 37 and says, And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This was the beginning of the deep anguish that he was going to experience, an anguish mainly related to the cross. And as we mentioned throughout his lifetime, there were lots of things that caused him sorrow, but now it's all building to a climax and his soul is totally repulsed by the thought of going to the cross and what that was going to mean for him. And it isn't because he hates the thought of physical pain, although there was going to be a lot of that. It's because he hates the thought of the wrath of God being poured out on him. The horror of that, of the alienation and the separation from the one to whom he is eternally linked as God. He hates the thought of having his absolute sinlessness receive the wrath of God as he bears a weight of punishment for all who will believe in him. I believe he begins to feel the weight of the cross before it's ever put on his back. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now the word troubled troubles me the way it's translated here. If you were just reading through this passage, uh, kind of going through without pondering the, the meaning of it, it comes across as if Jesus was sad and bothered. Eh, he was troubled. But he was so much more than that. The Greek words used here are words that indicate a deep, deep, grieving sorrow and a severe heaviness that results from that, a severe even depression. It means a restless shrinking back from some trouble that can't be escaped or avoided. It's a deep sadness here. In his humanity, he felt it severely. The defection of Judas and knowing that this man who had walked with him and lived with him and and listened faithfully to his teachers ends up betraying him and being a traitor to him. The upcoming betrayal of Peter, the strong leader of the disciples, the one who named the rock. Then there's the rejection of his, his people Israel, the people to whom he came as the Messiah, the people whom he loved, his own people rejected him and soon would murder him. If that wasn't enough, I believe there's a severe, severe loneliness that comes over Jesus as he contemplates a separation from his Father. He is the spotless, blameless, pure, holy Son of God, and the sin of the whole world is going to be placed on him. We can't come close to imagining what that's like. 
and knowing that the wrath of God will come against him to literally pay the full penalty for sin. Think of the forsaking of God expressed on the cross by the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One author wrote, the eternal deathless one must die. The unfallen man must pay the price for fallen man. He who had no experience of death or of dying would taste death for every man. No wonder he was depressed. No wonder he went to the cross with agony. Edersheim, the Jewish historian, poetically wrote, he disarmed death by bearing his shaft in his own heart. As he moved into the darkness of the Mount of Olives, it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled, distressed, depressed. He began, indicates that it's, it grew worse as the night progressed. The struggle now is a struggle over whether he is willing to go to the cross, a very human struggle. It's so terrifying that he wants to ask if there's any, other, any way that he can avoid this. This is the greatest temptation, I believe, that Satan can bring on Jesus. And though it doesn't explicitly say it, I believe it had to be Satan in his darkest hour. Where else would the strongest desire to disobey the Father come from? You remember back in Matthew 4 when Jesus was out in the wilderness, Satan came to him and tempted him. And you remember the gist of Satan's temptation. You're the Son of God. Why should you go hungry? You're the Son of God. Why should you be rejected? You're the Son of God. Why shouldn't you rule? You're entitled to it. And that temptation may have come back a hundredfold here in the garden why are you anticipating this pain? Why are you looking at this suffering? You're the Son of God. You, des- you don't deserve it. And that's true. He didn't deserve it. Satan had even tried to keep him off the cross by using Peter. You remember Peter saying to him, No, you're not going to the cross. And Jesus says, Get behind me. Who? Satan. That was a, sa- a satanic temptation. He recognized that as a temptation from Satan. The agony is there because he knows what he is facing. And it goes so much against the grain of his holiness. In verse 38, he says to the disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. How overwhelmed? To the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. The word used here is the strongest word for sorrow. Overwhelmed with sorrow, surrounded by sadness, engulfed in grief and distress. Jesus wasn't just being dramatic or melodramatic here. It was so deep that in his humanity, he felt that it could actually kill him. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So what did he do about it? our second word. He prayed. (laughs) Isn't that a novel idea, right? He prayed. He went to the Father. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. A little farther. How far? (laughs) Doesn't matter. But Luke actually tells us about a stone's throw, about 30 feet away or so, just far enough to be out of earshot to be alone with his Father. He literally fell on his face and prayed. And his prayer is this, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup 
be taken from me. If it is possible, if there is any other way. I don't think he's trying to say, let's not redeem those old sinners. <laughs> I don't think he's trying to say, Father, I take it back. I don't want to be a part of this new covenant thing that, that you've got planned. I think he's simply saying, is there any other way? Does it have to be this? He's not asking to avoid the redemptive work. He's just asking if there's any other way to accomplish it. If there is, may this cup be taken from me. What is this cup that he's referring to? It's not, it's not the cup that we're celebrating here at the communion time. The cup always seems to be tied to the divine wrath of God, especially in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Habakkuk. Listen to what Jeremiah says in chapter 25, verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup. This cup what? This cup filled with the wine of my wrath. And make all nations to whom I send you drink it. It, rep it represents the fury of God over sin. It represents the punishment of God, of God against sin, the wrath of God. And Jesus is saying, this is, this is a cup I don't want to drink, the cup of wrath. Don't make me drink it. The cup of God's full wrath against all sinners. But even in his agony, even in his agony, Jesus never lost sight of why he came to earth. He came to save us from God's wrath and eternal punishment. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. In fact, John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, I'm not asking you to deliver me from this hour of redemption. No, this is why I came. But... If there's any other way, and we know well what his own response was, yet, not as I will, but as you will. He took that thought captive. He took that thought captive. He took that desire to get out of this captive. He took the temptation captive. The Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, wrote, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and do what with it? To make it obedient to Christ. This is a divine principle, and Jesus knew this principle. This is a discipline every Christian needs to learn and to put into practice. This is a conscious effort on our part to pause and think about every thought that goes through our mind. I'm absolutely serious. People are so apt to believe and go with the first thought that pops into our minds. And that is so dangerous. So dangerous because Satan is constantly throwing thoughts into our minds, trying to cause doubt and division, trying to cause dissension, trying to cause an upset. How do we take every thought captive? We need to stop and consider where that thought may have come from. Is it negative? Is it hurtful? Is it making me think bad things about someone? 
Does it go against God's word? Who would be putting those thoughts in my mind? Is that coming from the Holy Spirit? Or is that coming from Satan? Is that thought glorifying to God? Is that thought uplifting and encouraging to someone? That's how we take our thoughts captive. By stopping the thought, considering the source. Then we're to make it obedient to Christ. What does that mean? If that thought is hurtful, negative, contrary to God's word, we are to refuse it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then discipline ourselves to consider whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Paul says, think about such things. Jesus, too, had to take every thought captive and make it obedient to his Father. There's the commitment. He came to do the Father's will. And if this was it, he would do it. He would never set aside the Father's will. Complete and perfect obedience on the part of Jesus. Was it easy? (laughs) No. At this very point, Luke chapter 22, verse 44, tells us he began to sweat great drops of blood. Is that a thing? It is. I looked it up. It's called hematidrosis. Because it's so rare, it isn't clearly understood, they say. However, hematidrosis generally happens when a person feels intense fear or stress. Someone facing death may have this kind of fear or stress, for example. When you are under stress, your body goes into flight or fight mode. In rare instances, the article went on, the flight or fight response can trigger the rupture of capillaries in the body. Now, capillaries are tiny blood vessels located throughout tissue. They are also located around the sweat glands. In cases of severe fear or stress, these tiny blood vessels can burst and cause blood to exit the body through sweat glands. Unbelievable anguish. And at that point, Luke tells us, in Luke chapter 22, verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I believe that the agony was so profound that God had to intervene at that moment to keep him physically alive. He was so distressed to the point of death, he said, beyond our imagination. After this prayer, he returned to the three disciples, and according to verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And then if we skip over a couple of verses to verse 42, it says, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now this prayer is different. It's different. This prayer is more resolved. He's coming to terms. He's coming to grips. The first prayer was, let it pass, take it away, please, any other way. This time, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. He is submitting to his Father's will. We always need to get to that point, submitting to the Father's will. If we don't, we'll always be kicking against the goads 
always fighting God's will, and that's never a good place to be in. And after he prayed, he came back to the disciples, and they had fallen asleep again, and this time he didn't say anything to them and went back and prayed a third time. Why three times? Three times a charm? No, he was so distressed. He doesn't want to be separated from God. Do you you know what that term means? He knew it was hell. Hell is a place of torment, but more than that, it is separation from God for all of eternity. And he didn't want to experience that. Hebrews describes for us the anguish and pain he was experiencing as as he prayed. Listen, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. That's how he was praying there in the garden. This was the third time. Isn't it interesting the first time in the wilderness Satan came to him three times? Jesus was overwhelmed three times here, and each time he went to the Father. Each time he went to the Father. Unrelenting agony, but coming out with a resolve to keep the will of his Father. I'm so glad that he did, aren't you? Why? Because if we go back to Hebrews 5, verse 7, we get the rest of the story. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Isn't that interesting? That, that whole phrase could be a whole sermon. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The third major word that we want to look at this morning is sleep. Sleep. Now, this obviously doesn't refer to Jesus. It refers to the disciples and is a major issue in this particular story. In verse 40, we read, Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. It was late. It was after midnight. They'd had a long day preparing and celebrating the Passover. Uh, This was after a long emotional week all through Jerusalem and being in the temple with Jesus and the arguments that Jesus had with the Pharisees and Sadducees and the rulers. All of that compounded by a huge Passover meal, a long hard walk up the Mount of Olives. They were exhausted. They fell asleep. But it was more than that. Luke tells us in chapter 22, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Exhausted from sorrow. They were emotionally exhausted. They were scared. They were worried, sad, overwhelmed with emotion. Everything seemed to be falling apart. They had been told about a betrayer. Judas was gone, and and, and the sadness had to be profound for them. Peter had been told he was going to betray his Savior. All the disciples were told they were going to be so terrified they were going to run in fear. Stay awake. Watch with me. This is crisis time, Jesus was saying. Satan is active. Demons are present and active. Never more active than they are right now on the eve of the cross. Watch. Be awake. Be praying. Understand what's going on. Understand the battle. 
Folks, in all spiritual battles, the victory goes to the vigilant, to those who are awake, to those who are praying. We are in a spiritual battle, whether we want to admit to that or not. We are in a spiritual battle. Peter tells us to be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. We need to be awake. We need to be alert, understanding the battle and from where it comes. We need to resist Satan. Did you get that? We need to resist Satan. So often I think people say, God, do something about Satan. Get rid of him. It says we, we need to resist them and stand firm in the faith. James tells us, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil. What's the promise? He will flee from you. Amazing promise. We, but we can't do it unless we're submitted to God. We need to know the scriptures and we need to put them into practice in our lives, submitting our lives, thoughts, actions, and wills to the Lord. Submit yourselves to God then we can resist the devil. We can actually say, I resist you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we can do that because Jesus Christ is living in us. We can say, I refuse to dwell on that thought or to allow that thought or that emotion to overwhelm me. We are to do it in the name of Jesus. And we can because of the fact that Christ lives in us and we have that same victorious power in his name and the devil has to flee from us. Oh, he'll be back. (laughs) He's always back. And he'll try again, but then we have to resist him again. It's a discipline. It's a constant process. It's an ongoing spiritual battle for which we have to be awake and alert. We cannot fall asleep spiritually. Prayer is our greatest weapon, and believers often tend to use it so infrequently. And this year, we want to get started right with prayer and be praying more as a body. The disciples didn't use it. Jesus did. And that brings us to the final word I want us to look at this morning, and that is strength. At that moment, the disciples were weak. But Jesus was strong. Why? Because he had gone to the Father. The Father had strengthened him, and Jesus had refused the temptation from Satan. By taking those thoughts and emotions captive, resisting them, and resolving to do his Father's will, making those thoughts and emotions obedient to his Father. Did his father take away the trials and tribulations and the pain and emotional uh, and, and eventual death? No, he didn't. But Jesus went to the father and dealt with those things in prayer. And having resolved in his mind and heart to walk forward with the father, he put the anger, the sorrow, the depression, the hurt behind him and set his face, set his heart on his father before him and did not look back. He gave them to the Father and did not go back and pick them back up again. Listen to verse 45. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? 
Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let us go. That shows his strength and his resolve. Do you know what else that shows? In his mind, in his heart, he's already got the victory. He's already got the victory. He didn't say, let us go and hide. Let's go find an upper room somewhere and try to get away. He says, let us go and meet them. Here comes my betrayer. See, he had already defeated the real enemy. Look, the hour has come. One commentator says, the moment has come. The last temptation is over. The cup was in his hands. He had drunk it and there was no trembling. He, was committed, he has committed himself to the Father's will and he is facing the cross. He's come through the last temptation with strength and triumph. Get up. Let's go. And over in John's Gospel, we, he tells us that there was a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. We're going to be looking at that next week. And you remember when he met them and they, they, they saw him and he asked them, who are you looking for? He says, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. What happened? He says, they drew back and fell to the ground. That was the power of the victory of Jesus Christ on display. The whole entourage collapsed under his power. He could have ended it right there if he had wanted to. And then everything we see after that temptation from now on is his great power and glory. We're going to see that as we continue all the way to the cross and beyond. Amazing incident there in the Garden of Gethsemane. But what do we learn from it? We want to learn how he dealt with temptation so that we can deal with it as well. And the heart of that is verse 41. He said to his disciples... And he says it to us, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is actually a continual action. These are action verbs, not once and done. Keep watching, keep praying. What was Jesus doing up there when he was battling temptation? He was on his face praying Alert, awake, understanding what was going on and praying with all the passion of his heart. So how should we deal with temptation? There are two things we need to remember. Very simple, actually. We need the Word. We need the power. The power is prayer. In his first temptation in Matthew 4, it depicted What Jesus used first when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, Jesus used the word. He answered every temptation with a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. The truth of God's word is power sharper than any double-edged sword. And what he tells us there is that it is essential in temptation to know the word of God. When you are tempted, that's not the time to go running and see if you can find a Bible to see what it might have to say about it. Way too late. The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. I've read your word. I've studied and pondered your word. I know your word. I've memorized your word. Why? So that I might not sin against you. It's already there. 
We must be armed with a word so we know the truth as opposed to the lies or have truths, which are lies. And therefore, we can use his word then to fight. But the second thing Jesus teaches us here in this battle of temptation is that we need the power of God, and that's through prayer. His first temptation, he, he, he used the word, he used that example for us. And the second temptation, he turns to God in prayer. Do you want to be victorious in your Christian life? Do you want to be triumphant in your Christian life? First, know God's word. Because the principles and truths of God's word will lead us toward righteousness. Secondly, even though we may have good intentions... Jesus said, our spirit may be willing, but our flesh is horribly weak. We cannot stand on our good intentions. We can't stand on our own sense of confidence. We must throw ourselves flat on our face if need be before God and cry out for deliverance from the strength of temptation. We must ingrain the word of God into our life and keep our eyes spiritually open. Be alert and pray without ceasing. The words watchfulness, prayerfulness, that's it. No magic. (laughs) Those are the two words that we need to keep in mind. That's how we deal with temptation and with sin. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, we are so thankful, first of all, that you loved us enough to put all of our sin upon your son, Jesus. The agony of it all. But Father, in that great temptation that Satan, uh, that, that, that Jesus went through as Satan tried to get Jesus to throw it all away and to find a different way and do something different, you show us how we can have victory over Satan, over temptation. And Father, I pray that we will remember the actions and the words of Jesus as we are tempted, we are to go to you first in prayer, using your word as a defense against the enemy. Father, I pray that as we look out to the new year, that we would have a new desire to get into your word and not just just read it and get it over with for the day but that we we would read and we would study and and we would ponder and we would consider and understand what that has to say to my life and how my life has to be transformed, has to be changed according to your word, and that we will become more and more obedient to your word. And Father, as we do that, that we would be coming to you in prayer about everything in our life. And that as a church body, we would be coming to prayer asking you to do some marvelous things for us here at Sio Community. And for the community around us, that's why you have called us. You came to guard us against your wrath. And Father, you have told us we need to send that message to those that are around, around us. Your wrath is coming upon them if they don't hear about Jesus, if they don't receive Jesus as their Savior. Put a new burden in our hearts, Father, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.